Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Join with me in hearing the words from Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money holder. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to be with you all this morning. We are in this 50-day experience through the Gospel of Luke. That's not only including these uh, Sunday mornings, but also daily audio devotionals. I'm curious uh, if we're enjoying them. Are they going well for y'all? I know half of us are enjoying it. We have about 100 people who are listening to them daily in our community, so that's been really meaningful. If you'd like to be a, a part of that, just feel free to take out your phone. You can scan that QR code, and it'll set you up there. But what we're doing through this series is we're listening to the whole gospel of Luke in 50 days, and we're getting back together on Sunday mornings and reflecting on one of those passages uh, that we've heard throughout the week together to, to deepen our experience into uh, the life and the promises and the claims that we find of Jesus in this gospel. And I hope that we have found it to be a good way to begin our year together. Before we talk about this passage, I just want to just to have a little conversation together. Before Omicron took place, one of my favorite things was dinner parties. I love, I love going out to eat at restaurants where you pay like, overpay for really small portions, and you have to figure out how to split that up. You know, usually you'll have maybe four people sit down and three little wafers of some sort of farm-to-table thing that's way overpriced. My favorite is dinner parties in homes. Like, I love the hospitality of going into someone's home and experiencing that. What makes a good dinner party? Let's have a little conversation here together. For you, what, what makes a really good dinner party really, really good? The people, you have to have the right people there. 
Conversation. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Cabo Bob's. Yeah. For some people, that's really important. What's that? Home cooking. That's right. When you can tell someone spent a lot of time creating something. Yeah. Those moments, for, I, th- I think, one of the reasons why dinner parties are so fun and meaningful is also, they're also like really delicate. Like they can go south really easily. What are surefire ways to ruin a dinner party? Politics, yeah. We don't talk about Bruno or politics, you know, like it, uh, yeah. What's another way? What's that? No alcohol. For some people, that will ruin it. Okay. What else? If someone else says Cabo Bob's will ruin it, I hear a, a, a problem. This is a staff issue where we'll talk to you on Tuesdays, obviously. I find that those uh, dinner parties are such delicate situations. You know, I think Larry David has made a whole career off of exploiting how delicate social interactions like a dinner party can be from like Kirby enthusiasm. I feel like half the episodes are over over what happened over a dinner party, whether it's someone dominating the conversation and not understanding that they're oversharing or maybe they've become a me monster and anytime someone else shares a story, oh, 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 let me actually, let me do you one better, you know, those kind of uh, experiences. Or a dinner party can get ruined if someone's overenjoyed the beverages that were served. There's uh, some people who enjoy throwing out conversational grenades to see how delicate the interaction has been. Or other people who just don't get the hint, it's time to go. You know, those dinner parties when you're hosting, you're like, okay. Uh, Ron Ragsdale, I wish he was here. He has a surefire way of letting people know. Uh, when he thinks the dinner party's over with and he's hosting, he'll just walk around brushing his teeth. You know, very subtle. Super subtle way of like, we're done. We are done here. <laughs> you know, we find one of these delicate moments here in Luke's gospel in this the seventh chapter, this whole chapter, if you will read it in the full context, it's around people's grasping, they're, they're trying to figure out who Jesus is. In this whole chapter, you'll find different terms and titles given to Jesus at the very end of Luke chapter seven. We have this moment where they're beginning to expand not only who Jesus is, but also what Jesus is doing. Jesus is coming to this town. He's a well-known figure. It would have been commonplace in that time for someone of prominence or power to host a party to welcome the guest who is there. And it was known also, the, the custom of that time, was that these dinner parties would be open door. Anyone could come and kind of sit in and listen. The people of honor would have a place around the table, but people from the outside could, could just come, listen to the wonderful conversation, see how it's done, and if there's any leftovers, they might receive some food at the very end of it as well. So Simon has the honor of having Jesus come to his home on this evening. And I think it's worth pointing out that Jesus was comfortable going to the house of a Pharisee. Like, when we say that Jesus was fully inclusive, we actually mean he included people from all different backgrounds. So not only the outcasts and the sinners, but also Jesus would be a guest at the religious leader's home, uh, for someone who was uh, powerful, well-known in that, in that place. Jesus was truly inclusive. And Jesus arrives, and all the other honorable people get their place at the table, 
reclining at the table, things are going well, the, fruit, the food spread was unbelievable, it was Instagram worthy, the place settings were there, like everything was going well, people were asking for Simon's Pinterest board that he used to organize the event. That is until she showed up. And when she showed up, everything got awkward. Scripture says that this woman had lived a sinful life. This idea of living a sinful life is something very specific. It has to do with, uh, about a sexual life, about a reputation of being known as perhaps a prostitute, a floozy, a harlot, whatever title they would have been given. But this idea that she had lived a sinful life, this was a communal decision that the community had given her that title, that understanding. And so... Out of all the different dinner gatherings, she should have known better to show up to Simon's house. Like, that's, that's maybe the one environment where she should know better. For the crowds who have been able to know that she was there, they, obviously it would have gotten awkward. It would have been, it would have been a tentative moment. But she arrived, and not only that, but she found her way to Jesus. You see, this woman was on a mission that evening to place herself Uh, at Jesus' feet, to serve Jesus, to care for him, to to pour out her love and her gratitude. What would cause this woman to interject herself in such a way at that kind of social uh, setting, in that environment? What would provoke her to be so bold and extravagant in her display of gratitude? Well, as I've thought about it, there seems to be only two different reasons The first one is that she already had an encounter with Jesus. We don't have it in the gospel. We don't see it. But perhaps she already had an encounter with Jesus where she experienced the love and acceptance and grace of Jesus. And so she shows up that evening to say thank you, to just pour out her gratitude and her love for what has already been experienced. Or what has happened is that Jesus' reputation had made its way to her. And she had this audacious belief, if I can just find my way to Jesus, if I can just be near him, if Jesus really is who people have said he is, then if I just get to him, maybe I will experience forgiveness and mercy that can set me free. And so when she finds out that Jesus is coming to her hometown, It doesn't matter whose house it is. She's going to find her way to Jesus. Nothing is going to stop her to meeting forgiveness. So it happens. So let's slow down a little bit uh, and kind of picture this moment. Imagine, if you will, conversation is happening around the table, you know, important conversation that adults have, maybe around the Torah or the state of the temple or how Rome is now treating Israel in captivity and that kind of conversation. And as this conversation is going on and people are, you know, speaking eloquently, in the corner of everyone's eye, they see she shows up. She slips in, the woman who should have known better. And they think, okay, that's fine. Just listen in. Don't try to get attention. Don't do what you do. But she slowly moves closer and closer to Jesus. And while the conversation is going on, you know how 
when you're trying to have a conversation, yet everyone knows this other thing is going on, we're trying to ignore, but conversation's still happening. That's happening for them. And this woman sits at Jesus' feet and begins to weep. She begins to mourn, to cry. And her tears are streaming down her face, and they're dropping on Jesus' feet. And she does the radical thing of letting down her hair. It's almost disgraceful for a woman to do it in that culture. But she lets down her hair and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. It's only someone who's been liberated from social constraints would do that. Only someone who's experienced deliverance would do that. Then she pulls out of a pocket this jar, cracks open this alabaster jar of perfume, and begins to pour it out. Perhaps this is the same type of perfume that she would use for her wealthy clients, but this time, that aroma would take on a different meaning. And as she pours out that perfume, the smell and the aroma begins to overwhelm everything else in that room, the smell of the food, the environment seems to be taken over by this overwhelming aroma of grace. It's bold. It takes over everything. It makes no distinction. It finds its way to everyone in the room. And as the smell of the perfume begins to be so powerful, the only thing that could take over, <laughs> the only thing that could match its power was the judgment that people were having shared around the table for this woman. This is what she does, isn't it? She doesn't care about what the right thing to do is. She doesn't care. She just wants attention. She just wants Jesus' affection like any other man. You could just sense the judgment beginning to, to be able to be stirred there. And then that judgment gets redirected to Jesus. Verse 39, if this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. That was not only the title they gave that woman, but notice the title they gave Jesus. What is the box they're putting Jesus in? He's just a prophet. If he really was a prophet, he would have this supernatural ability to know who this woman was. But see, Jesus' identity was vastly beyond what they expected. Jesus, in fact, did have the ability to know deeply not only what this woman's experience was, not only her past, but Jesus also knows what they were all thinking all around the table. They all knew if he knew, if he knew what she really was, but Jesus actually wants to show that he, he is a prophet. He does have knowledge of something more important. But this was a predicament for Jesus, for him to point out what was going on and if, imagine if he would chastise Simon and the other people for judging her, then all of a sudden she becomes a prop. She becomes like a prop in this conversation and all the attention and judgment would be upon her. And Jesus didn't want her to be a prop. So what does Jesus do instead? He tells a story. There's this wonderful story about King David. When King David uh, took Bathsheba, um, killed Uriah. There's this Old Testament story. There's this prophet Nathan who wanted to call him out, but you couldn't just do that. So what this prophet Nathan did is he told a story about 
this wealthy man who took a, a lamb that belonged to a poor man. And he used that story to get into something more deeply without actually addressing it. That's what Jesus is going to do right here when he tells this story. He tells a story, instead of making this woman a prop, he says this parable. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50, 550 denarii. Denarii is one day's wage for a day laborer. That's one way to think of it. One day's, uh, day's wage for a day laborer. So that means that one person owed two months' wages, and one person owed 20 months of wages. Both were big debts, but one was extravagant. You could say one debt was reckless. The only type of person who would amount that kind of debt was someone who was foolish, right? And verse 42 says, neither of them had any money to pay him back, so he forgave both of the debts. Both were forgiven. Then Jesus asked Simon the question, now which of them will love him more? It's a weird twist. Which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. In this parable, Jesus is making a connection between two different things. Forgiveness and what? Love. Forgiveness and love. The one with the greater debt forgiven will love greatly. But then Jesus, this is the beautiful thing about you can do with stories. It, Jesus is painting this picture, and then in a moment, he flips it around, and it becomes a mirror. It becomes a mirror where they can see themselves in this story. And Jesus said this to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been given, forgiven little Loves little. This woman had love and gratitude spilling out of her, like the tears from her eyes, like the fragrance that was enveloping this room. And so for Jesus, that aroma was the aroma of love. It was the smell of someone who's pouring out their love for Jesus. This could provoke the question from someone, which is, so should we sin greatly so that we might love greatly? Like, should we just be reckless with how we live so that in the end we could be forgiven for a lot and then love a lot? I don't think that's the point of this story. The reality is, for me, when I look at this, the reality is that this woman, she knew her brokenness. She had been told about it from the community. She probably felt felt it in her own soul, the weight of it, the undue burden of judgment from her community. It was something that she knew well of, and probably it sunk into what she thought of her as herself, like her identity. Now, Simon, on the other, issue, on the other hand, his issue was not that he was without sin, but that he was blind to his sin. His goodness and his moral superiority it had blinded him from his own need. 
His problem is not that he did not love Jesus enough, is that he just did not realize he needed forgiveness as well. Jesus would say elsewhere, it's only the sick who need a doctor. But Simon wasn't sick. Those with a great debt forgiven love greatly, but Simon didn't have a great debt, especially compared to her. Therefore, Simon, because of that blindness, was not being transformed by the grace of God. Simon's problem was the opposite of the, sin, the sinful woman's problem. The problem was not his sinfulness. It was his damnable goodness that had kept him away from seeing grace and experiencing God's goodness and favor. You see, turning from Simon, Jesus turned to this woman and said the words that are only given for those who love greatly for those who know that they are in need of grace and mercy. Jesus said to this woman, your sins are forgiven. And then the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said, I love it, Jesus ignores them. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Earlier in this story, it was revealed that this group had seen Jesus as a prophet. If he really was a prophet, but see, Jesus didn't come just to be a prophet, but he came to give forgiveness. Jesus didn't come just to give forgiveness, but also came so that those who, ex who ex experience shame, demeaning, devaluing, condemnation, especially from those in the religious circle, that they could experience deliverance and freedom and lifting up. If you guys remember uh, last week, the, prophet, uh, the prophecy that was spoken over Jesus was, you will cause the falling and the rising of many. What we see here in this moment, Simon of great standing is being lowered, and the person on the absolute bottom of the social and the moral uh, culture of that day is being lifted up. Your faith has saved you, is what this woman has said, has, has been told. What saved her? Her faith. Not her knowledge of scripture, not her moral scorecard, her faith, the kind of faith that wastes expensive perfume to pour upon feet, the kind of faith that shows up in a home where you should not show up in, the kind of faith that is displayed in knowing that you are desperate for one thing alone, and that is the grace of God. And it didn't matter that this dinner party was at a Pharisee's house, because that is where Jesus was. And wherever Jesus was going to be was where this woman was going to find herself because that is where grace resides. I love this story. Don't y'all? Don't you love what it displays about Jesus? How he, how he cared so little to fall prey into empty religion and how he cared so deeply to find people experience liberation and value and significance in a life with him. And as I've sat with this passage this week, I have just wondered what we see about Jesus still true of the church today. Is the church today the safest place for people who are in need? People who are in need of grace, is this for like the safest place for them to come? People who have felt excluded or shunned and disgraced, is that the work of the church or is the work of the church the opposite of that? Are we as a church more reflective of Simon or are we more reflective of this woman? 
So this past week, my family, we experienced the uh, uninvited gift of family time because of quarantining. My daughter tested positive uh, at the end of last week. I know right now you're reconsidering, did we shake hands, did we hug? No, we haven't, that's fine. I've tested three times, including this morning. I am more negative than anyone else here. But I had the great opportunity to be with my family, be stuck at my home. So what does that mean? It means my wife and I finally cleaned out the garage. We found so much stuff there that we forgot we had. Well, I had one box we pulled down, and it was a box of journals that I kept. And I'm a sporadic journal, journaler. I'm not someone who does it often, but I'll just go on like a couple months where I'm like all in it. I'm like, ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be one of those people with deep souls. I'm going to journal a lot. And then for like three years, I'll just put it away. So I had, I loved thumbing through this journal because I also am very forgetful. So it's like, oh, yeah, I did that. You know, I experienced that. And I was going through this box of journals, and I saw one, uh, one account that, Really, as a pastor, there's times where you read something or experience something, you're like, oh, thank you, this is a gift because it's a perfect sermon illustration. That was me this week going through this journal because there was this one moment I had uh, with two friends. We decided to travel up the Northwest. We started off in San Francisco. My friends Luke and Kyle and I, we decided to go on a little trip. And we started off in San Francisco. We, guys, we drove through the wine country we stayed in this villa in this town called Mendocino. Who's been to Mendocino, California? Oh, my gosh. You, got, you have to. It's beautiful. It's like spooky, beautiful, gorgeous. It's right along the coast. I feel like it's where Goonies was filmed because it's just kind of like that foggy beauty. Uh, so we spent some time there in that villa. We camped in the Redwood Forest. We ended up in Portland, Oregon. We spent our time on this trip laughing so much because we had no clue how romantic of a trip we would plan with the bros, it was awesome. Uh, but Kyle and I, Luke had to fly out early. Kyle and I had this one memorable night in Portland. We had heard about this place when we got there. It's this place called the Kennedy School. Had anyone been to the Kennedy School? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, they're my people. Okay. So the Kennedy School is this, is this elementary school that was empty and abandoned. And this one brewery purchased it. And you would think, oh, they were going to purchase it. They're going to scrape it and build up something there. No, they kept it as an elementary school and just totally redid it. So, like, the lockers are still in place. Everything, like, just kind of flipped those. So, like, the, um, the, principal, the principal's office is like a scotch lounge. Uh, the teacher's lounge is a cigar lounge. There's a pool there. Uh, the, the courtyard now is a beer garden. Like, you walk through it and you feel like you are, should not be there. Like, is it, you know, is it a PTO night? No, no, we're just at a brewery, and it is so fun. Uh, the cafeteria is now a concert venue, and uh, so, you know, we showed up there that, that night just to check it out, and we kind of, Kyle and I were like, well, whatever's going on here, we're gonna, just going to spend tonight here at the Kennedy School. Without knowing what was going on that night, we found out that there was a concert there, and who was playing? The Monsters of the Accordion. They thought the squeeze box was dead for good, but they're in for a surprise. Monsters of accordion. So uh, <laughs> I guess there, there was like five of the Northwest's uh, most promising traveling accordionists that were there. And Kyle and I were like, well, do we love the accordion? No, but are we going to pay money to listen to 
multiple accordion players tonight? Sure, why not? Yeah, why not? That's one of our favorite questions on trips. Why not? Why wouldn't we do that? So um, a highlight for me was, we didn't know this, but the man, the myth, the legend, Duck Mandu was there, the famous accordionist, guys. You guys want to hear a little bit of Duck Mandu? You can't, you can't beat that. It's just beautiful. How is that out of style? I don't know. Okay, so let me paint the picture. What's going on there? You might wonder, who's showing up to an accordion concert? Great question. It was the most bizarre mixture of people. There were hipsters who were trying to show like so desperately that they were not into anything radio friendly. There was also like people with full tattoo sleeves. There were dorky accordion people that were there. There were a handful of people in drag. There were old people, young people, rough looking bikers were there. And then there in the middle of it was Kyle and myself, wide eyed and loving it. Like it was the most melting pot of misfits and weirdos. And we were there in the middle of it. Okay, that's enough of the music. Sorry, Duckman Do, that's enough. Um, but there was one artist who came up and he seemed to be like the most like rough looking one out of all the accordion players. And uh, he, would, he would sing along with his music. And uh, this one time, um, he stopped before a song and he started talking about his issues with church. And uh, one of his issues was that there's all these different saints that people venerate and pray to and look up to. Uh, and there are certain people that the church looked down upon. And he, sa- he started talking about how he personally was drawn to the person of Judas because he thinks that Judas gets a bad rap. There was all this prophecy about someone had to do what Judas did, and it seemed like he just kind of jumped on the grenade for everyone. And someone had to do it, so Judas, you know, he just did it, and yet we judge and devalue him. What do we call him? Traitor. And all that Judas did was he simply told people where Jesus was. They just asked him, he told them where Jesus was, and forever he'll be known as the reject, the traitor, the failure. And then he turned to the crowd and said, does anyone else feel like a traitor, a reject, a failure? Well, then maybe Judas could be our saint. And then before he began the song, he he, uh, said, I give you Saint Judas, the patron saint of sinners. And he played this song, and guys, the crowd loved it. I remember, like when I was reading through my journal, if the accordion player, I wrote that if the accordion player would have had an altar call to accept Judas in their heart, I think everyone would have come forward. Now, on the plane ride coming home, I was replaying um, that scene and how sad and unsettling it had it, it made me. And it took me a while to realize, as I was journaling on the plane, why was I saddened by that experience? And I, it just came to me that, oh, there is a patron saint of the sinner. That's Jesus. Like, if there's any title that seems the most appropriate for Jesus is that Jesus declared himself over and over again to be on the side of the sinners. He didn't come for the upwardly mobile, the bootstrappers, the moral, those who keep their life together. He came for the sick, the tired, the rejected, those who were told that they were unlovable, those outside the religious circle. Those are the ones whom Jesus gathered the, the woman deemed the sinner, the outcast, the misfits, everyone that were cheering for 
the accordion player that evening who are longing for someone to stand on their side to hear their prayers. Friends, that is who Jesus is. And not only is he the patron saint of sinners, but he's the savior of sinners. He's the one that gives sinners a new name, beloved. The Gospel of Luke, this writing is trying to convince us that Jesus' gospel is a gospel of grace. And I know that's a cliche, I know that's a churchy cliche, but that woman, that was not a cliche for her. It changed her, it transformed her. And I think for us, if we are not melted and moved by the idea that there is a gospel of grace, then we might be in the same seat as Simon, who shows up to be around Jesus to hear a lesson, to see if there's anything that's worth learning I want to slide back into this role of this woman who hears that Jesus is coming to town and it doesn't matter where he's showing up. It does not matter who he's around. I'm going to find my way to him because wherever Jesus is, there is grace. And the beautiful thing about it is not only are you going to find Jesus' feet, but you're going to find everyone else who is also desperately longing for newness and renewal and forgiveness. And friends, what happens there, that is the church. That is the creation of the church are those people who find themselves at the level footing at Jesus' feet where there's grace and forgiveness for everyone who knows and sees that they need it. Jesus' kingdom belongs to those who are in desperate for grace. My friends, this is why the vine exists, is that we want to be a community where we share that with one another and we partake in this great love. May it be so for us. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.